Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back. I want to continue our amazing interview with patient advocates Maggie Karastechi and Julie Drury. We pick up as we are talking about tackling the third wave of COVID. Continuing on this idea of co-design and health system change, I want to connect that to what we are seeing with COVID across Canada. As you know, right now in Ontario, nationally, we're facing down the third wave of COVID, and with variants, it's worse than it's ever been. So my question is, how do you think things would be different if we have had patient and family co-design front and center and baked into our decision-making processes? So I'm going to say that we both probably have pretty strong opinions on this. Um, I'll start quickly, and I'm smiling as I'm saying this because I know Julie and I have talked about this frequently, and and, um, things could have been different. So, you know, we're seeing so much pain and suffering with COVID, and I think, you know, we talked about it briefly at the beginning. Um, All of us, including leadership, need to have the humility to adjust as we go. And as we've learned more about the virus and how it works, um, we have the information that we need to make changes. No one expects perfection at the beginning, but we do expect that we learn from it and that we course correct. And a very clear example that both Julie and I have been very involved in is the blanket no visitor policies that we saw at the beginning of COVID. So getting that second sober thought relating to those blanket no visitor policies proved to be an enormous hurdle and it should not have been. There was very much unnecessary pain and suffering that came from it. Had there been co-design in place and the infrastructure in place to do that, as opposed to you know a, a, an advisory council that need to be pulled together, I think things would have been different. I, you know, I'm I'm I know Julie has things to add to this, but I'm just going to add that for me, COVID has changed the landscape, and it's made me understand that the role of caregivers and the importance of their unpaid work was cast aside so easily in this crisis. So inroads that we thought we had made, um, and I'll admit to being quite naive about that, I now see that it's time to really push the envelope in the area of co-design and to create a model where where co-design is part of the fabric of the health system. It's not an add-on. So that when the next crisis hits, we are ready and we are embedded and we will inform policy right from the get-go. I mean, co-design, as Maggie said, it informs, it results in better policy. I've seen it time and time again, both in my professional career and in, 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 in the personal situations I've been involved in with the healthcare system. Co-design and patient leadership are engaging uh, results in better policy. Um, and, and there is a, a significant amount of evidence in the literature and in the research to support that. Um, From the point of view of what could be different in a time of COVID, I mean, I think there's many things that in the past when this all started, um, in the middle ground, when we were trying to gain traction on things like family caregiver presence and and these highly restrictive blanket visitor policies that were extremely harmful, 
not just from um, a, a compassion and care and, and a humanistic and emotional and psychological point of view, but actually concrete care and harms that were that, that patient safety situations that patients were facing without their loved one at their side. Um, I think, you know, probably the strongest and most clear example is in long-term care. Um, the isolation of seniors from their caregivers who everyone knows were integral to the functioning of the, of the long-term care system. They were feeding, they were bathing, they were clothing, they were helping us seniors to move around or ambulate, um, keeping them stimulated cognitively. And when they were removed unilaterally, uh, devastation occurred. And I don't think anybody can argue that. And so while we're trying to protect our healthcare system and look at a risk-based approach, how did we balance that with harm? COVID is not the only harm. It's very significant. It's very important, but it is not the only harm that our patients face in the healthcare system. And our family caregivers, our essential caregivers are integral to that. So going back to this point that Maggie was making about co-design, had patient family caregiver leaders who were quite knowledgeable of the healthcare system already interacting and engaging through advisory councils and different types of committees, had they been involved in that work and co-designing what that could have looked like, maybe we would have seen better policy coming out of the gate or pivots in policy sooner. Um, advanced directives. Um, you know, we are not clinicians and we are not experts in clinical or critical care, but we could probably talk about how is that communicated to the public? How are families engaged in that? How is it communicated to the patient? Um, in some instances, advanced directives have been discussed with patient family caregiver advisors. For example, in the province of Quebec, there were three patient advisors involved intimately in the development of the advanced care directors for that province. And Vincent Dumez is one of the leaders in that space, and he's well known in the patient advisory community. So it can be done. And it's very important to do because it does, it, it results in better policy for all of us, better communication, increased transparency, all the things that we want across the healthcare system. So, you know, I, I just want to add, you know, with COVID, we hear a lot about um, being in it together. So what I'd like to suggest is that that needs to be more than a hashtag. And we, when we think of in it together, that needs to include caregivers and families and patients in the development of policy that's going to make a difference. Yeah, like sometimes I think about how our vaccine rollout strategy would have been different if we have a designated patient, family, mother, you know, uh, teacher on those advisory councils who aren't necessarily representing a political, you know, piece of the puzzle because even just, yeah, just for a different diversity of opinions because so much of this is a human experience and you know even to the point about vaccines um you know a very simple example is the fact that the majority of caregivers are looking after people that are homebound so the vaccine the initial phases of the vaccine rollout did not address the fact that we had millions of homebound canadians and we didn't have a plan for getting them the vaccine so even that alone would have been different had we had co-design I think the only thing that I want to add, um, and, and I think this came through, but, you know, Maggie and I are also fierce champions of our healthcare providers and our healthcare leadership in this country and in, especially in our province. And I've, I've made great friends across the system, highly, highly respectful. And I want to thank them all for everything they're doing right now. I'm going to get emotional, but 
it's a hell of a time right now. And, and um, these people are under, under incredible stress and showing incredible professionalism. So I, my heart goes out to them and I, I want to thank them deeply, deeply for what they're doing and what they're enduring. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, our frontline workers have been stretched for so long and we all owe them a debt of gratitude. And some of this, the tension between medical and scientific advice with politics and policymaking. So much of what we've talked about, you know, is about, um, we've talked about health policy and decision-making from leaders in the system. Uh, Part of why we were so passionate about this podcast, Targeting Patients and Families, because as we had this recognition that we could learn from each other, like you've been saying that a couple of times, Maggie, that we have knowledge within our communities, we have so much knowledge, and this idea of lived experience, sharing that, but helping each other, you know, sort of from the community. And I guess I just wondered if you feel like there's any sort of role for this idea of, I guess, social movements and shifting things by having patients and families sort of take charge and doing some of this that has been very difficult for hospitals and health systems to fix. You know, to pick up on your point, I think every individual patient, family, or caregiver has that opportunity. And they need to gauge that for themselves, their comfort level, and and balance that with their knowledge and their experience of their own care situation and of the system. Um, Because as we mentioned before, that can be an unsafe position to put a patient, family, or caregiver into to push the system and to be that that change agent and advocate for change. You hit the wrong person, it's going to result in significant challenges for you, potentially. But I will offer another example. Um, you know, recently a group of moms came together with children who have a lot of medical complexity and developmental issues and are often in wheelchairs, require Hoyer lifts to be lifted to be changed. We're not talking about young children you can put on a change table. We're talking about, you know, preteens, teenagers. And their local children's hospital simply had did not have accessibility um, to you know, appropriate washrooms or change stations. And so, you know, they got together and they... They, they, they did exactly what you're saying. They became the agents of change. They reached out to administration. They asked if they could be heard. You know, a meeting was set. They, were, they got themselves organized with a couple of people who would speak on the behalf of the group and organize what their top five issues would be and what their asks were, and they had that conversation. But what that required was for them to be mobilized as a group. It wasn't just one individual. It required the leadership on the other end to be open and receptive and welcoming of that conversation. So it's really very much a two-way street. And so that change agent piece, it sometimes it sometimes gives me pause because I worry about the one individual who's going to speak up and, and be the difficult patient or the entitled patient um, and, and wear that label. I think it's really got to be about community and, and pulling together. And maybe this podcast can be a catalyst for how do you bring together community. And there's lots of places where community occurs for the medically complex parents. There's one more thing for caregivers or there's caregiver Ontario. That's a great organization. Um, So there's places where you can mobilize to find community so that you're more than one voice. So, you know, I'm going to add on to that. I agree completely with Julie um, and we've talked about it and I want to be a little bit careful here. So I think that um, the peer support from the community of caregivers has been priceless for me. Um, that's how I met Julie, you know, reached out and, and responded when I was having difficulties with my sister. So that that is a, uh, 
fundamentally important piece for me, but I want to be a little bit careful. So I do have a but. Caregivers are tired and they're stretched and the peer support that we provide to each other is so important, um, but we're often beyond the boundaries of what we can do with our combined work responsibilities, caregiving responsibilities, and family. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I feel like I'm the weakest link in so many chains because there are just too many balls to juggle. So I wanna be careful to, to keep some responsibility on the system here. The system needs to change to be truly person-centered and to recognize that essential role of caregivers that Julie's been so articulate talking about. And then to provide the forums and the means and the infrastructure to do that. Um, and it's not a nice to do. So, you know, when we think about our constrained system, caregivers are a vital part of that system. We supply an estimated 40 to $60 billion of care that would otherwise be the responsibility of the system. So I think we need system partners to work with us and to support us. And while we want to encourage community and peer support, I don't think we can abdicate that responsibility from the system to make the changes necessary. So that's, that's a nice segue into my next question, which would be, what advice would you be giving to health system planners or administrators or policymakers who are listening right now? So I'll, I'll start with this one. So we talked a little bit about um, COVID and what we've learned. Um, so, you know, caregivers and families were shut out in a heartbeat at the beginning of the pandemic. And I don't believe there was ill intent, but I think it was, e it was deemed to be easier not to have to deal with another layer of people. So, you know, we talked about the fact that this turned out not just to be wrongheaded, but harmful. I think caregivers and family inclusion and policy development needs to be a requirement that's you know, literally baked into the infrastructure of the system and of healthcare organizations. So that in times of crisis, like the pandemic, they're already at the decision-making tables. And I think also recognizing, you know, my other advice to system planners and administrators is to recognize that blanket policies are not policies. You know, they're not nearly nuanced enough to deal with the nuanced issues that have arisen, and they can cause tremendous harm as well. Um, and again, we've talked about this, but, you know, had families and caregivers been involved in the development of policies in lockstep with organizations and government, I think things would have been different. And the other thing I'd say is, Julie's touched on this a bit, but I think the system planners and administrators need to recognize that every single caregiver is unique. There are more than 9 million of us caring for millions of sick, um, often housebound Canadians. So it'd be wise to ensure that the caregiver voice is at all planning tables for health system planning, including as we talked about the rollout of vaccines. And I think it's important because I think to do other size, to do otherwise, we miss the mark in good planning and we're gonna have less than optimal results. And it's that recognition that we're essential to the well-being of the people we care for and that our role should be reflected broadly in health and public policy, yet it's not. How about you, Julie? I feel like you have a lot of experience giving advice to, to policymakers. What, what are some of your best advice? Uh, Maggie and I um, are, are, are very like-minded in, in, in this space as well as in many other things. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my, my top four of what needs to happen. Um, we have standards 
uh, somewhat for hospitals and healthcare organizations in this country to engage and partner with patients. So there is a standard on having a patient family advisory council, for, for example. That's actually required in the province of Ontario. They have to be stronger. The standards and the detail around the accountability for those standards have to be stronger. It's time to update those. Um, we need to uh, have identified roles um, for patient partner leadership. So I am the past chair of the Minister's Patient Family Advisory Council for Ontario. We have a new chair. We do not yet have a council. This has been three years. Um, we need to have those leadership roles. They need to be highly visible. They need to be patient, family, and caregiver partners that are in leadership roles, that are well-connected, that have a strong network, that don't necessarily speak on behalf of all patients in the province, but have that capacity to network and to bring in a key number of stakeholders and to be articulate about the type of change that needs to happen in the system. Those roles need to start to come to the fore. They need to be at universities. They need to be at schools of medicine. They need to be in our hospitals. They need to be in our, in our, in our public settings and in our ministries. Um, and it's not just about having one council uh, reporting to a minister of health. Um, and then we need to see, um, in Ontario especially, um, a new patient ombudsman appointed. That is an incredibly important role for our province. Kathy Fuchs would have done um, um, an incredible, incredible job in drawing attention to the many of the things that we're talking about now in this podcast in regards to patient-centered and patient-partnered care, what needs to change and what needs to happen, and, and holding the system accountable. And so we need to fill that role with another extremely strong person who can bring that leadership and the visibility to that space. And so those are right now my top four. Um, and I think they're low-hanging fruit. I think they require a little bit of resources. I think they require a lot of leadership. And I'm quite hopeful that, you know, right now our attention, rightly so, is on COVID. We've got to recover. We've got to get through the crisis and we've got to recover from that. But I'm hoping that we're also thinking about what needs to change our healthcare system to support the rebuilding and revitalization and what that's going to look like going forward. And I'm really hoping that patient, family, and caregiver leaders um, and people in their, in having direct care from the system are going to be involved in that. Are there things that you're involved in now that are giving you hope about the future? Um, am I hopeful? Are there things I'm hopeful about? I think there's opportunity for really good traction with our leadership at um, across the Ontario health teams. I've heard some really good things uh, from some of the Ontario health teams that are forming and they're very much in the background right now. They're not part, part of the noise but there's some incredible leadership there from patient, family, and caregiver partners and from the leadership of those OHTs um, and, and many, not just one or a handful, but from many of them. So I'm, I'm hopeful there. I think at, um, at, a, at, a, at a national level, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see the emergence of some of our really high profile leadership organizations like the Canadian Medical Association, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, for example, who are creating things like patient voice or creating roles for patient, family, and caregiver leaders to, to come into um, uh, planning exercises like a strategic plan for a, a major national you know, clinical fellowship organization. So I'm hopeful there. And um, uh, I'm also hopeful that um, we're going to come through COVID 
with a renewed sense of what compassion and empathy and humanity and care look like. Um, we're learning those lessons hard right now. And I don't think we have the necessarily the, maybe it's the time, maybe it's leadership, maybe it's, um, you know, just, just everyone being, um, you know, so pulled in so many different directions that we can't address it right now. But I hope as we get into recovery, we really have some deep thinking about how our system needs to shift and pivot. Um, and I'm hopeful that patient family and caregivers will be involved in that recovery, as I said earlier, from not just from a physical health standpoint, from, but from a mental health standpoint and, um, and, uh, and, and working at it together and supporting one another together. This isn't about an us and them. I want to be really clear that. I mean, Maggie and I are not beating up on anyone in the healthcare system. I have deep, deep respect for anyone that I've encountered across the system. And I know many administrators and clinicians are like-minded alongside us. Um, and they're also feeling quite struck about, you know, what's happened and what is happening. Um, but it's, it, we've got to create those opportunities to start to work together. It, it really can't be just a, you know, a, a couple of um, people around the table. It really has to be a holistic uh, team effort. I think if I could just add to that um, briefly, you know, I think part of that, that team effort and that whole notion of, of allyship and inclusion and the fact that healthcare workers are also feeling this same um, need to, to get together. Part of the government's role is to provide that infrastructure and the mechanisms that we can do that appropriately. Um, so again, you know, I, I'm, an opt I'm an eternal optimist. I'm hopefully a pragmatic one a bit though as well. And I think that there's a movement to make care and healthcare a verb and not a noun and not a place. And that movement is shared between caregivers, families, citizens, and healthcare providers. And I think we're starting that movement that we're starting. There's actually no going back from, you know, so I think we have to kind of seize the moment, um, recognizing that we're building meaningful communities of care. Uh, and that we're working together to create, you know, what Julie refers to often as our North Star, like a system that really, really looks to that North Star of being patient and family inspired. And that gives me hope. You know, I when I think a little bit about our experiences with my sister and with my dad, it's really important for me to have hope because it gives me hope that not only her, but thousands of Canadians that are like her and thousands of families that have had like experiences will one day be at the center of care that will be designed with them and their families and caregivers, not for them. And I think that hope is an important fuel to keep us going. Well, I wanna thank you both so much. I wanna leave you with one final question. We started this whole movement with this idea that patients and families always said to us, like, why didn't someone tell me that sooner? Um, and so you both have all this experience. Like, what advice would you have for a patient or a family or a caregiver starting their journey right now? So I'll start. I, I would say for me, the most important piece was finding a community of people who will support me and work with me. Um, so people, you know, look for people that will help you find your way. Uh, find ways to get the information that you need um, that you're not going to get, you can't get and won't get from the system. 
So, you know, I mentioned briefly before, but I can't, I can't tell you how valuable the community of caregiver advocates on social media, for example, have been to me in my journey uh, and how much I've depended on their wisdom and how much I value the friendships I've made. Um, Julie and I are a perfect example. You know, I think of Julie as a, an extremely dear friend, um, partly because we think so much alike, but partly because she did reach out and she showed kindness and she showed empathy and she helped me find a way. Um, so much so, so that I'm going to shamelessly use Julie's approach to how to be a patient advocate here, and I'll reiterate it, and she can add to it. Um, it's meant a lot to me, and I virtually consider it every single day when I get up. And that approach is best summed up by her phrase about being gently fierce. Uh, and it's worked well for me in that it, I, it, it prompts me not to let my voice be silent. Um, I'm insistent that I be included, and I make no apologies for being relentless and finding ways to do it. But the key to that approach is what forms the foundation of that pursuit, which is doing it in a way that's underpinned by kindness and humility, and then also remembering why we're doing what we do and why we are, you know, why we're taking the time to do this. It's, it's because we want to make a difference and we want to make things better. My best advice. To anyone who is starting on this journey, who got the phone call about a cancer diagnosis, who have not been feeling well and presented to emerge and have the realization that they've got a, you know, a complex or a chronic condition, um, who've had a, you know, traumatic injury or traumatic event from which there's going to be a long recovery, don't wait. Don't let the system come to you. You need to go to the system. You need to engage. You need to, to lean in. Um, if it doesn't feel right in your gut, if it's not resonating, if you don't understand, ask questions. Ask questions. And if you still don't understand, ask another question. Ask for it to be written down. Ask for someone to slow down. Ask if you can have someone present with you to listen in. We know that patients only absorb about 20 to 25% of the information given to them. So write it down, have a notebook and write it down and revisit those notes. And I think the last piece as well, and we talked about this much earlier in the conversation is that you have to realize as a Canadian, even if you're not using the healthcare system right now, that you have a responsibility for your own care and for coordinating that care and for understanding your condition and the medications that have been prescribed and for advocating for yourself. You have a responsibility. And if you don't do that, you are placing yourself at risk in the system. And that's no one's fault. That's how our healthcare system is designed. And no matter how well coordinated it is and how much we break down the structures and the silos, there will always be that responsibility for your own self-care, your own self-advocacy. And you've got to embrace that and lean into the system. Don't wait for it to come to you. And be gently fierce, right? Hell yeah. Be gently fierce. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub, 
please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.